This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode number 276 of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. It's Black Friday for everybody out there listening. And for this special Black Friday episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about barrel-aged stouts. It's like this is the day for doing that. And uh, joining me on this special Black Friday episode of the podcast is Kyle Carbaugh from Wiley Roots. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, the occasion is a good one. Uh, Wiley Roots had a Best in Beer, one of our top 20 beers of 2022, um, as covered in the Best in Beer issue. And, uh, you know, and so I thought, you know, hey, this is a good excuse to come talk about <laughs> barrel-aged stouts on Black Friday with one of our uh, favorite, a, a beer that uh, rated 100 with the blind judges of craft beer and brewing. Um, and so we're going to do that. Yeah, so, <laughs> sounds like a great plan. It makes so much sense in my head, right? Uh, and so we're going to do that. We're going to talk about you know some of the beers the Wiley Roots makes, things like uh, uh, tart fruit beers. Uh, we're not going to call them sour. It's not really even that sour necessarily, you know? They used to be. <laughs> things, things have changed. Things have changed a lot. Positively, I think. Uh, I think uh, We're going to talk again about these progressive styles that Wiley Roots focuses on. Um, barrel-aged beers, fruited American, fruited tart beers, uh, fruited IPAs, milkshake IPAs, these kinds of, you know, fun things that you all brew a lot of out here. And some of the things that make it out there into the broader world through routes like Tavor and other things where people have probably grown more familiar uh, outside of the local Colorado audience that has more access to a wider range of the beers. We're going to talk about all of those things, but first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, g Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. g micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. g Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design, while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry, contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Kyle's got a large GD Chillers chiller out front uh, <laughs> that I noticed it was, uh, it was cranking away as I walked in. Yeah, it, it greets everyone on the way in. It does, it does. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or undercarbonated beer every canning day. It's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com for more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. ProFill can fillers use rotary true counterpressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contact us at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand. So Kyle, give us the, the Wiley Root story. What's, uh, what's your arc through craft beer look like? And then, uh, you know, how did you, how'd you get into the professional side of craft beer? Decided to launch a brewery out here in Greeley, Colorado. <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, um, I actually grew up in in Greeley. Um, at the time that I started brewing, just uh, it was home brewing, right? On, uh, on my stovetop at home, uh, five gallons at a time making relatively pedantic, not really all that interesting and mildly infected beer as, <laughs> as we all start sure, with home sure. brewing. <laughs> um, I was actually doing that, um, at my house in Denver. Um, 
it was one of those things that was born out of uh, kind of a corporate career, um, uh, I guess, lull, if you will. Um, I was actually a, a CPA. I worked for uh, for a big four accounting firm before starting the brewery. And um, uh, Miranda, my wife, um, and now business partner, which is a very fun and interesting dynamic as well. Sure. Um, she said, uh, you really need a hobby because um, you get home and uh, you're just zoning out and not very productively zoning out. So you should you should really consider doing something. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I ended up uh, having a conversation with one of my buddies just com- completely randomly and completely unrelated uh, who also was, worked at the accounting firm. And uh, he just mentioned one day that he, uh, he brewed his own beer. I was like, this is... Wait, what? You do? You do what? <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't know anything about this. So, um, yeah. So he uh, just kind of like, uh, I guess, planted the planted the seed, and then it just went completely rampant from there. Um, went from brewing five gallon batches on the stovetop to brewing uh, fifteen gallon batches in the basement to buying a pilot system and planting it in my parents' old horse barn um, up in Greeley. Um, it was actually one of the conversations. It's kind of interesting about the arc of Wiley Roots. Um, the building that we're in used to be another brewery. And, uh, when it was that other brewery, we, uh, came in, patronized them and, um, sat down and had a chat with, uh, just me and my, me and my parents, um, about, you know, Hey, if we're going to do this, we're going to get some additional equipment, figure out how to go on this route to going pro, you know, do we get some just, you know, nondescript real, you know, real estate or, or rental space in Denver, or do we go it a different way? And they said, well, we got this old 1200 square foot horse barn that has concrete floors and utilities to it. And why don't you, you know, do it there? And that was kind of the, uh, the birth of what is now Wiley Roots. So, <laughs> and then uh, you, you know, from the parents horse barn where you were piloting, uh, you know, what were the, how did Wiley Roots, the brewery, then come into being? Yeah. And so, how did you end up <laughs> taking back over uh, <laughs> and then growing and expanding on that brewery where you had some of those initial formative meetings? Yeah. Uh, so we, we uh, you know, originally just intended to pilot brew and do do some home brewing out of the horse barn. Um, it, but at the same time, some, some equipment came available from Upslope Brewing Company. Sure. Um, we ended up buying a couple of their old seven-barrel fermenters and... Um, we shoved those into the horse barn, which were, <laughs> they were, they were a bit tall for what the horse barn was. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, brought those in, uh, had a little more, more beer, um, like brew sculpture, flat brew sculpture, mm-hmm. flat brew sculpture. There we go. Um, and, uh, you know, continued to look for commercial real estate that would be uh, a, a good, you know, presence, a good like retail presence because we only ever really intended to be a nano brewery, which is a bit of an interesting <laughs> worked out a little differently for you. Yeah, it's an interesting semicolon on the uh, on the arc, but yeah, um, yeah. So we started out brewing twenty gallons at a time uh, into seven barrel fermenters, hmm. and it was very, uh, very much not like it was thought out, but not from like, all right, is this how everybody does it? You know, we tried to have those conversations, but at the time, it was very much like. Um, and I think this goes for a lot of homebrewers that start is right. like that imposter syndrome of like, I want to like, I want to approach this conversation with this professional brewer of like, I know what I'm doing, but at the same time, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, so the, the question of like, Hey, I'm going to do this 20 gallon system into seven barrel fermenters. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> that conversation should have happened. And it sure, didn't, sure. But, um, yeah. You know, and things were also a little bit different in that but we, there weren't necessarily at that time as many, uh, you know, uh, quality smaller scale 
stainless steel fermenters and uh you know of course you know for for homebrew and nano kind of scale yeah. now that that equipment is just ubiquitous and it's actually kind of incredible what what it looks like on a small scale down too um so you start making beer and selling beer commercially then out of the horse barn actually no no we we were just making beer um, oh, okay. just to pretty much give away um okay. just to figure out process figure out recipes um what, you, what about your what year was this um this was 2010 oh okay so yeah. very yeah, relatively yeah. early on sure yep um and then uh you know, after uh, there are a lot of brewers learning and making it up as they went along <laughs> right around that same <laughs> that, time. You're absolutely right. Um, and that's a lot of what it was. It was like, oh, well, what if we do this differently? What if we brew with raw wheat? You know, that was one of the fun experiments that we sure, did back sure. in the horse barn is what if we do raw wheat? And I was like, well, I have no idea what to calculate for efficiency on raw wheat at this point. And the calculators didn't really account for, you know, raw wheat. Um, and so we wound up making a, and like eight and a half percent, you know, light wheat wine, which hmm. was interesting when you told people that it was a wheat beer because they drank it like it was a wheat beer. And uh, about two two beers later, it uh, <laughs> <laughs> conversations right. went went right. drifting. Um, so yeah, at that time, you know, yeah. that was in 20, 2010 to twenty uh, end of twenty twelve, and uh, we had been looking that entire time for some commercial uh, real estate that would fit the fit the budget, fit the fit the vision. And, um, we couldn't find anything, find anything, couldn't find anything. And, and, you know, I was still living up in Denver and, um, commuting. still working that corporate accounting job, still doing the corporate yep. gig. Yep. Yep. And, uh, ended up, uh, having a conversation with the, the distiller that was actually next door. Um, and they said that, uh, the brewery that was here actually had acquired another space for their retail operations and potentially would be moving their, their brewing operations, um, across town. So, I reached out to the landlord um, multiple times. Um, he he was a great uh, first landlord for us. We learned a lot from this individual. Um, Sounds like there's more stories there that we're not going to get into on the podcast. So. But yeah, uh, I kind of get what you're putting out there. Yeah, yeah. Learning experiences. Sure, sure. You know, that's, uh, I've had those learning business business partnerships yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago or well, 25 years ago. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need some of those. It's, uh, you know, it's not always fun, but it's always valuable. <laughs> you, you learn, you don't make the same mistakes again. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, at the time, uh, we, we basically found that this space was coming available. We um, were basically ready. We had the equipment. We had the, the business plan ready to go. And we had some of the funding going. Um, you know, quick sidebar, um, both Moran and I, entered the workforce right uh right before uh the 2008 recession so mm. um kind of the, the lessons learned there um of just you know leverage and how to best use leverage and and view leverage in in light of cash flow and all of those things right um were things that we were like all right well when we start this business we need to make sure that the concept is proven out you know we tried to prove the concept out in the horse barn and it worked to a degree in terms of the product side. Mm -hmm. And then it was, well, okay, well, everybody's saying that this beer is worthy of paying money for. So let's figure out how we go ahead and legally collect those, those dollars, um, you know, exchange that, make that great exchange of beer for money. So, um, so we, we figured out a way to do that with, uh, you know, the, the cash, that, cash and capital that we had on hand, the, uh, the lease agreement that, that made sense and was right sized for the business at that time. And, this is where we landed, a very nondescript business park on the east side of Greeley <laughs> yep. in northern Colorado. Sure, sure. So. A building with a lot of character, you know? That's a great way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it's, uh, you know, there, there is something, you know, and I noticed this, like whether I'm walking through hop farms or, you know, any kind of like agricultural focused area, um, you know, you've got the same vibe going on here. There's uh, there are tanks behind us sitting on their sides. There's a former brew house over here. Uh, you know, there's an old chiller right there. There's just, you know, there's just stuff, you know? Yep. And the hot farm's the same what kind of way. Like, you know, you have your own mechanical, you know, folks that are going to fix and repair stuff because you don't just call a repair person when something breaks. Like you have the people that fix those things for you because it's a mechanical business. And so, you know, in this kind of Greeley is also is a farming community. It's a big part of the, the Greeley economy. Um, you know, there's this kind of self-sufficiency and this kind of when things break, we fix it. And we've also always got some other stuff lying around, you know, we're going to pull from and, you know, and then, so it's fun to, to see that that vibe, it carries through in this entire kind of facility, you know, yep. even as things grow and progress. You know? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the core things, uh, you know, with, with our, our ethos, or at least the way that uh, Moran and I have, have approached, you know, not just the brewing side of life, but our, you know, uh, our, our life in general, um, is, is this, uh, you know, try to be as resourceful as you can know when you need to, uh, you know, reach out for help and, and get someone that's specialized in those areas. Um, that being said, finding that line is, sure, is a, sure. again, a great business learning experience. <laughs> For sure. There's been, I imagine, a whole bunch of those learning experiences. And at the same time, the arc of brewing here at Wiley Roots has undergone uh, some major shifts from the time that you started. I remember the first beer that you won a, a GABF medal for was, uh, was a wheat beer. And, uh, of course, now you're not known for brewing wheat beer. You're known for brewing barrel-aged stouts and fruited uh, uh, tart beers with, you know, very flavor-forward and progressive things. Um, you know, and so finding what that Wiley Roots beers, what those styles were that were going to resonate with people and connect with people has also been this long, you know, period of multi-year learning to get there. I want to, you know, talk about that some of that arc of product. Before we do that, are you looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough? Think outside the puree box. Let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft to beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices in order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million can minimums. For a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with a quick six- to eight-week lead time on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft in cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at AmericanCanning.com. So, yeah, Kyle, when you started this, you were going to brew some pretty conventional craft beer styles because that's what everybody brewed in the early, you know, 20-teens. You thought, you know, okay, and then... Uh, uh, you know, the arc has followed a different path since then. Talk to me about, uh, you know, how you all and have been, you know, how this vision for what you're going to brew has, you know, morphed over time and grown into what it is uh, today. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the craft beer industry went through this period of time where it had this perception that if you brew it, they will come. And the things that you brewed were things that were approachable and uh, sessionable and maybe a, on occasion out there, but you certainly didn't build a business around, you know, out there beers. 
um, especially in the brewing industry. That should, or the brewing industry also in Greeley, Colorado, in, in the agricultural town of Greeley. Yeah, at, at a time when there was one other craft brewery sure. in this in this city. Um, and it's a city of, of about a hundred thousand people, but it's also a city of two worlds, right? We've got, uh, you know, uh, kind of your, uh, more, more well-off and, and then you've got your, your folks that, uh, maybe don't have as much disposable income as, as, sure. uh, you know, um, as craft beer would warrant. Um, the fun, fun, interesting thing about the city is that it's about 50, 50. So we've got a mm. hundred thousand people in the city, but really your addressable market is kind of that. A group with disposable income is maybe only 50,000 people. Um, so now you start kind of whittling that down and then you've got the cultural influences. And so we, we were like, eh, well, let's just lead with a, a wheat beer, with a, a red, a porter. And uh, here's our wacky thing, a white IPA. <laughs> right. Back in 2013, white sure, IPA sure. was considered adventurous, right? Um, so we opened with that. And, you know, we had a, a, a good uh, good following to, to start. We had some really interesting challenges. Um, we actually got flooded out um, in the uh, floods actually after 2013. So 2013 was the big flood that took out, uh, you know, Longmont and Estes right, Park. and. Right. Um, in 2014, um, effectively what happened is, uh, an area that had been compromised by the floods in 2013 got rebuilt. And then the city came in and said, uh, that area needs to be rebuilt differently. Um, so it was actually the, um, construction company that's down the block. I don't want to get them in trouble, but, um, let's just say they, they know what they're doing in terms of, uh, civil engineering. And the city came in and said, mm, nope. Um, so they actually had to come back in and tear that out. The, the reinforcement that they did. When they did that, it created a further um, <laughs> problem. And so we ended up having where we're sitting uh, actually was uh, had about, call it 10 inches of standing water. Oh, my goodness. Um, and that was in the spring of 2014. So like May, May June of 2014. Um, so all of this momentum that we had kind of right, created right. in those first nine months of, of, of being a business, um, brewing on, you know, with two fermenters, two seven barrel fermenters on a seven barrel brew house at that time. Um, it all kind of came crashing down with this, this flood situation. And so we, we ended up having to dump a bunch of beer, which we didn't have a, a bunch of, yeah. bunch of beer to, to, to dump. And we didn't have a lot of capacity to be able to rebrew any of that. Um, so it was definitely a, a slow slog getting back right. to, you know, where we could be. All right, well, this is a viable commercial enterprise again. And um, that took about, I would say, probably four or five months. Um, and in that four or five months, we started exploring other areas that we were super interested in. And that was, uh, you know, sour beers. I always had an affinity for, for La Folie and, um, you know, some of the stuff that, uh, that I could find at the liquor stores, you know, whether it was Oud Beer Cell or, sure. um, you know, even I, I say sour beers. Chimay was one of my first loves. So, you know, mm -hmm. having that Belgian beer influence and, and understanding, um, you know, a little bit of that Lambic side of things. Right. Um, was was something that Crooked was Dave, even that 2012 2013 ex was exactly you know they were getting off and we could still get you know some of those crazy early bottles uh at some of the local stores around here sure yep exactly so that that influence just right, was right. super interesting especially when we started talking about like well all right well how do we capitalize on the volume that we can produce and it, it can't be you know relatively pedantic wheat beers that we're selling for a relative relatively low you know low revenue high revenue point so um how do we how do we make better use of this and at the same time we had taken over this warehouse that we're in now um which is a great great asset for the brewery um Tons of area to, to, that's one of the things that we haven't necessarily always struggled with is space. I know a lot of small breweries, um, space is always a concerning consideration for us. It was just trying to 
grow smart into the space that we had kind of accessible to us. Um, we didn't start out leasing the space, but um, it was something that we took over within about a year and a half of, of being in business. It was um, very convenient that you had all of this contiguous warehouse space. What you had a you know little square out of this with the brewery in the tap room originally. And I remember that the early days of the brewery back then when uh, the brew house was still, you know, tucked into, you know, the space behind the tap, the behind the bar in the tap room. And, you know, yep. that, but right. You've been able to expand into this warehouse space and then also take over that former distillery that you mentioned when they left and where the production primary production now happens over there. But let's talk about, let's talk about this style. So you, you decide to, you know, start playing in styles. And I remember, you know, some of those earlier, uh, you know, mixed culture beers, you all started making the funky couch uh, line of beers um, were just, I mean, those also have scored incredibly well with the judges of, of craft beer and brewing, you know, blindly judged um, some really interesting stuff. I, you know, of course there's not a huge market for mixed culture, beer anymore at what point did right. you just you know start playing in this kind of like you know fruited uh you know, you know kind of quick quick kettle sour sure uh, you know tart uh fruit beer kind of space when did that evolution happen and uh you know how did you find yourselves really getting excited or interested interested in that category of beer yeah absolutely i think you know with uh you know the mixed culture program that we started it was very traditional super influenced by you know likes of jeff stuffings and jester king um, even to the fact where we were figuring out how to make barrel stacks, how they made it. Um, and at, at the height of our like sour beer, mixed culture, wild fermentation production, um, I want to say we had about 160 barrels, uh, oak barrels back here in the space that we're in right now, now occupied by 60, yeah. 60 barrel fermenters. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, ultimately the transition for, for us went from the, really interesting sour beers that are uh, resonating with, with those like Uber consumers, the people that are really deep into that world. Um, they don't translate well to the general public. And so how did we, how, how can we um, continue to scale, you know, that interest in, in, in exploring um, acid in the form of beer, um, whether it be a, a mild amount of, you know, uh, kettle sour or whether it be kind of on that more assertive side where you're ma matching, you know, malic acid uh, profiles with lactic and, you know, all the other things that are going on in those wild sour beers. Um, how do we, how do we take what we've learned in those, those really deep end beers and approach a customer base that maybe um, wasn't ready for that, uh, that profile, uh, had it and decided that they didn't like sour beers or, um, you know, even expanding it beyond that, uh, there's plenty of people who say they don't like beer. How do we change their minds and making things that are, uh, relatively approachable, relatively accessible. Um, that's, that's kind of the transition or at least the, the influence that, that made sense in our heads, um, of, of taking these things that we learned in the deep end of the swimming pool and trying to get people to, to wait a little deeper. It's almost like you want to build a pipeline and a, a way to, for people to connect. And once they build that connection, maybe they'll go a little deeper with you, or maybe they're going to search out that next thing to go a little bit further. Sure. Sure. Um, but if you don't create that pipeline or people don't connect with the brand, then they may never have that experience and they may never go in that direction. And, 
Um, you know, I, I think that's an interesting philosophical question. I, I know there are certainly some brewers on the more curmudgeonly end of the spectrum who are like, kettle sours have killed, you know, they've killed yeah. traditional sour beer. I, I, I understand that viewpoint. You know, I, I do think what you're saying is probably, you know, seems to ring a little bit more true from the, you know, my perspective that, uh, you know, if you don't create consumers, if you don't create new customers, and if you don't find a way to, you know, make beer connect with them, then they can have a hard time even ever becoming your customer yep. or, or even finding that thing. So, uh, uh, you know, th- there are definitely some differing approaches on that. It seems like, you know, you guys dove in deep in, in figuring out how to make nuanced, but also fun, bold, flavorful fruit beers. Where do you find yourself now? Um, you know, what what is the kind of focus around that as you're thinking about and designing these beers? You know, uh, what kind of buckets do you put them in? You know, and what do you, how have you defined some of these kinds of, you know, products, uh, you know, within this kind of quick kettle kind of, you know, tart space? Again, I, I keep not wanting to use sour because <laughs> they're really not all of that. They're not, no, they're not sour. sour. They're, like, they're just, fr- they're fruit beers. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the, and, and it's, it's funny you mentioned the the kind of like the curmudgeon, like, no, that's, that's, that's not the way that the beer industry should be going. Um, and you know, I, I was on that, on that side of the fence for a very long time of, of watching what kettle sours were doing to the industry. But at the same time, um, I was watching what was, what was happening with the people that were very, uh, kind of married to that, that old school, old world method of, of production, you know, people that were, uh, you know, really going after the likes of, of Casey and Cantillon and, and Dre Fontaine and, um, even back in the day, you know, some of the almanac stuff. Sure. Um, you know, watching kind of what they were doing is, you know, they were getting their fill on on uh, these very traditional style sours, and so additional players that were bringing the same thing to uh, to the landscape maybe weren't uh, able to to, to penetrate uh, the market nearly as deeply as they once could. Um, so it was a narrow, nerdy market, but that nerdy component of the market was just, you know, I mean, it's one or two percent of of that craft beer consumer base, not the 10 or 15 or 50 that you, you know, that that might be useful for courting as a business that also helps you maintain some sort of, you know, long-term viability to this overall thing. They they feel cool. It feels cool to appeal to that, you know, top 1%, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to sustain a business. Exactly. You know, it's, it's there, there's the big difference between like the things that we're interested in um, as a beer producer and the things that we're interested in as a business owner. Um, and I, I have consistently wrestled with those two sides of, you know, what is going to make the most sense, um, both from the things that satiate me um, or satiate my, my uh, you know, my, my brewer self and the things that satiate, the, you know, the, <laughs> the bills, <laughs> so to sure, speak. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think, you, you still know, make pilot batches for yourself exactly. for those uh, small things that you just have to have to, you know, flex on. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the funky couch culture is still maintained with Inland Island use company. So, um, they've been a great partner for us on that. So we bring project. it back one day. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, perfect. I'm waiting yeah. for that, <laughs> especially with, you know, Nelson or something along those lines too. That, <laughs> that version was amazing. And it was in cans too. You should, yeah. You can totally sell that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so now within this world of uh you know uh 
quick tart beers from you know fruit beers um with this acid component um what what kind of buckets how, how have you started you know, i mean because you develop now multiple lines of beer even within this thing it's not as if everything is in one bucket you are finding new ways to make that whole category more broad and find different customers even within that category itself. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really started with slush, right? And in, in 2018, we started this uh, this this idea that we could take, um, you know, a, a kettle soured beer, add uh, fruit flavors that mimicked, you know, the the quintessential drive-in uh, flavor profile classics: um, cherry limeade, strawberry lemonade, all of those kinds of things, and 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 put it in beer format. Um, and literally we got up to, you know, the, the, the launch of slush as a brand and said, what if we took this another step further that really pisses people off, (laughs) um, in the form of freezing beer. And so Hmm. I think we were maybe one of the first, uh, breweries to, uh, put beer into a, a frozen uncarbonated beverage machine, a fub machine, um, and figure out how to do it where people, absolutely lost their minds about it. Um, so you took this slush line, you at made actual slushies from it. Exactly. Sure. Um, and I, I kind of, I prefer these, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek as beer abominations because at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I'll be the first one to say, I did not get into brewing to make the kinds of things that we become known for. Um, but at the end of the day, I've, I've definitely got into brewing to make interesting drinkable things that happen to be centered around, you know, brewing as a process. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest distinctions and the things that I've, you know, had to put on the shelf was like, all right, my own personal opinion about this doesn't really matter. Um, I have to have some guardrails and I have to have some boundaries of which of where we're going. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to make things that are interesting and palatable um, to an audience that may not be exposed to beer or may not be all that interested in drinking the beer that they've been exposed to. Um, and so I think that's, you know, in, in terms of the lanes, that's where we said, all right, well, it's going to start with slush. And then we're going to go into, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, lactose based, uh, pie expressions, uh, which was our County Fair Cobbler series. And then we said, oh, let's take it another step further and do tiki cocktails that are, you know, also lactose, but different ABV, different adjuncts. Um, we can go kind of over the top with this, this tiki style. Um, and then we got into, um, this realm where, the customers that were familiar with slush and tried slush loved it, but also wanted us to go another step further. Um, you know, there's a, a brewery that's really, really well known for their, their uh, non-fermented fruit adjunct beers. And uh, those, you know, the, the Venn diagram of the customers that enjoyed those and the customers that, that enjoyed slush started to overlap and overlap and overlap and to the point where we kind of couldn't ignore it anymore. And that's where fruit ladies were born. So that was our super fruited smoothie style, sour, tart, beer, fruit beer. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I guess this is the best don't way make, to put Don't it. want to mean to make you self-conscious <laughs> about that too. My own hangups and uh, Joe saying our manning editor's hangups are, uh, you know, filtering throughout all of this. So, you know, sorry to, sorry to throw you off there. So talk to me about fruit lady. Now, is that uh, one of the primary focuses now, uh, you know, of this, or do you kind of balance between each of these lines, um, are there some now that where people that is what you focus on and 
some of the uh, evolutionary steps that got you here are no longer as uh, as compelling. What's the current state of of this program look like? Yeah, I think um, ultimately, you know, we still make slush. Slush is still something that that a lot of people um, gravitate towards because it's familiar and they understand it. But it's also reached a level of maturity where, like, you know, kind of amber ales in the late '90s and early 2000s kind of got to um, that people have either had it before and and you know you, you aren't getting that like um you aren't attracting that customer that's going to internally churn right um so how do you uh how do you continue to engage that customer and what's the difference I, I should say between like slush and fruit lady um so slush is brewed at uh we've actually increased and re- re- rejiggered the uh um the base recipe just this year, uh, we went from a 4.8% traditional like Goza base minus the salt, minus the coriander, minus the, you know, German style mm-hmm. yeast, um, to, uh, a five and a half percent more, you know, higher alcohol content, sour plus fruit, plus more fruit, plus more fruit and some adjuncts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we actually calculate the dilution so that you know what the ABV is on these. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Our, our folks at Firmly definitely help us out on <laughs> sure, making sure. sure we're not lying on the on the label. We, there you go. That's important to us. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, you know, we, we went after that, uh, you know, uh, slush side of things and, and, you know, trying to produce people's favorites and classics in that line. But then taking, you know, the Cobbler series and, and uh, taking that in a completely different realm that maybe shocks people that beer can taste like a key lime pie. Um, as far as the current status goes, you know, we've, we've really seen through the pandemic, we saw a crazy explosion with, uh, the, a visit from the fruit lady series. And, uh, so much so that we spun off another series and said, well, what if we did the same thing that we did with slush where we, where we take this base beer and then we throw it in, in some phase changing, um, machinery. Um, so yeah, we made ice cream out of beer. Um, which again is, you know, a level of like tongue in cheek beer, beer abominations. Um, it turned out popular enough that we started selling quarts to go. <laughs> Just, I mean, again, right. not what I intended to do, but it, if, if that's what, uh, if that's what keeps people employed and, and keeps paychecks clearing, then I'm going to do it. So let's talk about what makes these and what makes these good. You know, uh, you know, that's, I think the, the key here, Again, you've been doing it for a number of years now, and you've gone through a whole bunch of iterations to get there. Um, so let's talk about some of the kind of, you know, the basics and, and some of the, the things that you found that work better than others. Before we do that, ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom-designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial to discuss your brewery project. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Also, here's a special offer from Twin Monkey Beverage Systems. Simply mention the CBB podcast when you contact Twin Monkey's Beverage Systems to get a special discount on a brand new canning line through the March of 2023. So let's talk about this, uh, Kyle. You know, what is, uh, you know, you got, again, you guys have been building and evolving these. Um, what are some of the core tenets of this? You mentioned a kind of a goza base without the coriander, without the salt, the, you know, basically just a kind of, you know, wheat, ale, you know, for simple fermentation. I imagine that the, the base beer itself is just not the focus here. It's, it's there to uh, kind of support. And uh, you're probably, I imagine you're also brewing to somewhat higher gravity because you're now diluting this all down with fruit to a, to a very significant degree. Um, 
you know, where do you go from there in terms of finding the best way to integrate fruit, sourcing the kinds of fruit, using fruit in which format, um, how you go about building a kind of extraction dilution, how you end up stabilizing that, you know, all these kinds of pieces that go along with it to make a good tasting fruit beer. And then also thinking about designing flavor. We can talk a little bit about, about that after, uh, you know, we talk about some of the basics here. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, the number one tenet uh, that I've always uh, stuck to is um, there is no such thing as, as making a subpar beer and then covering it up with fruit. Um, the brewers that are doing that, I will admonish them. <laughs> Sure, sure. That is not that. That's not the point, right? Um, if you took, and ultimately, it's hard to be successful if you do it that way. You know? it, yeah, it yeah. translates into every other every other realm. Um, you know, for for us, we've always said, you know, the base beer really has to stand on its own. If the base if the base beer doesn't stand on its own, then what's the point? Um, so, starting with a good quality base beer that's you know doesn't have the isovaleric um, acid components or or any of those you know funky weird feet vomit things that you get sure. um, from improperly kettle souring, and we're still doing a lot of kettle souring. I know there's a lot of breweries that have gone to just acid dosing on uh, you know a blonde ale effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still doing the kettle souring. <clears throat> that may change and evolve. Um, you know I, why? I why? What's the difference? Um, just pitching acid. Sure. So instead of, you know, right. You can buy like 88%, you know, food grade lactic acid and just add that in. And we should say like, I mean, you actually don't need to even add a whole bunch of it. I mean, it's the amount of lactic acid that you need when you have the acidity from fruit also is not that significant. I mean, we're not making, you know, you guys are not making, you know, sub three pH, you know, just, you know, 15 uh, grams per liter titrate roll acidity, you know, kind of beers. Like these are, you know, subtle, gentle beers that where the acidity is really just highlighting the acidity that already exists there in the fruit itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the intention is making something with, you know, a, a, a bacterial uh, component um, that uh, uh, lends itself well to, you know, uh, to being a base for a fruit expression. Right. That's, that's the whole goal. Um, and so there, you know, there are different processes and different, uh, um, different brewers, you know, doing that uh, via pitching acid. And, you know, from my perspective, it's just been, um, we, we like the bacterial, uh, addition approach. It makes sense with how we've built out our brew house. It makes sense with, um, an, an interesting concept on that. Uh, we actually put valves on our new, uh, on our new brew house, uh, steam stacks. So you can actually isolate all of the, uh, like every kettle from, mm. from outside. Right. They're almost basically fermenters. Um, they still have a little bit of, of, uh, um, you, know, you don't have to inflate a beach ball in your uh, exhaust stack to, you know, <laughs> exactly. to, to keep outside atmosphere from coming in while exactly. your kettle's out. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So we went ahead and when we built everything out, we said, all right, well, we're just going to valve these things and, and make it work that way. Um, and we, you know, I think that the acid side of things, when you when you start talking about bacterial acid production, there's obviously a threshold, um, especially on on hot side when you're when you're doing kind of a controlled saddle, uh, controlled kettle sour, um, where if you you know, have, have somebody that maybe isn't looking at the, uh, you know, the, um, the beaker correctly, they're overthrowing acid and, uh, or, you know, not looking at, at, uh, uh, completely calibrated tanks for volumes and all that kind of stuff. So I think it can be overdone really easily on acid, um, if you're just doing pitching. Um, and so that, that might be something that we look at in the future, but for right now, we're pretty comfortable with, with what we're doing on the bacterial side. So sure. Sure. And it's, uh, you know, outside of tying up tanks, uh, tying up your kettle for a little while, yep. um, you know, it is, it can be less expensive than, uh, you know, buying those, 
<laughs> exactly. Just acid materials to yeah. And now yeah. you've got you know things like uh, acid producing yeast that uh, is sure. in the, you know sure. that, I think it's with sour cerevisiae right. Um, where you can just pitch a brick of yeast and get your acid production through everything that's going on in that GMO world. And, sure. and I think that's fine. I think it's it's great. You know, in terms of um, making these beers more accessible to people, um, I think the the big thing. F- you know, for me, you know, starting with that base beer that's solid and then uh, finding high quality fruit that you can, you know, accentuate that profile with. And you still just use a, a lactobacillus strain then in the kettle itself? Yep. Yeah. It's a probiotic based um, like juice beverage, mm. um, lactobacillus plantarum. And we found that that's uh, it's the most consistent for us. It produces mm. the, you know, a really tropical fruit forward um, acidity and, and profile that that. Uh, you know, really is that great canvas that, that, right. that we enjoy at least. So it's still a wheat component in this grist. Yep. Yeah. We, uh, we were at about, uh, 60% two row, uh, 30%, uh, malted wheat, uh, about 5% unmalted wheat, and then, uh, about 5%, uh, acid malt. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So that, uh, that unmalted wheat, um, which is really interesting because we actually sourced that directly from uh, a wheat farmer in eastern Colorado, one, mm-hmm. of my, uh, one of my buddies growing up. He's a, he's a wheat farmer. Cool. So we try to integrate this, uh, you know, that, that rustic local component behind all of that fruit, um, still trying to tie it back to that, you know, local agriculture kind of component. So. Sure, and even if you can't taste it under all that fruit, it's still uh, it still, it still makes you feel good. <laughs> makes you feel good, you know, you know. And I imagine that like the heft of some of that kind of helps, uh, you know, support some of the the higher end and sweeter flavors. Exactly. Yeah. You know the 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 dextrin component, the bodybuilding things that take place with unmalted wheat. I think that you know uh, you you can't taste it, but you can perceive it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it definitely has. Um, it makes that base beer stand up to the fruit component a little bit more, I think. It's interesting to think about it too, because, you know, you're also building texture in this. And oftentimes when we think about texture in these beers, we think about that coming from sugar. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I think is most interesting about that. You know, we, we, we were making, you know, some spontaneous beer um, there for a little while using unmalted wheat um, and, and, and actually using, you know, the, the wheat from, from my, uh, from my good, good friend, longtime friend. Um, and I, I think that was one of the things of like, maybe it was subconscious of like, all right, if we're going to, you know, maybe I don't want to say compromise, but we're going to set these, these other super, uh, altruistic, um, you know, curmudgeon-y brewer things. If we're going to set all that on the shelf, well, at least we're going to carry forward the raw wheat. So gonna hold on to that. Exactly. Sure. 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 <laughs> so then, you know, so you've, you, uh, you create this, acidic base beer uh or slightly acidic base beer really but uh, you know kind of substantial supportive base beer um you know and it's the same same beer then across the the mark for you know depending or do you change it based on what fruit you were intending to add to each batch um we look at it more in terms of lane so our, our slush lane definitely gets the same base and then we look at the same kind of fruiting rates um we're using a lot of uh you know whole fruit purees um as kind of the the the, the shining star for that series we augment that depending upon the fruit um if we want to have a little bit more punchiness um you know cherry is a really good example when you use sweet cherry puree you're getting a lot of um you know, uh, flesh material in it, you get a lot of tanning contribution without a lot of either, uh, you know, sweetness contributed or without a lot of that, like super ripe cherry, uh, contribution. So, um, trying to balance that out in terms of between, uh, using, 
you know, whole fruit puree and then juice concentrates, right. um, blending those together so that you get this more full rounded fruit expression in the beer. Um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a, a big component of, of, of the production of, of slush itself. Now, when we start talking about cobbler, um, we aren't necessarily looking for the, um, you know, full fruit expression because there's so much else going on in that beer, whether it be, you know, the, the mouthfeel, the body, the residual sweetness from lactose, or whether it be the cinnamon, graham cracker, vanilla that we're adding on the backside as well to, to really emulate those, those pie aspects. Um, as we get into fruit lady, that's a completely different situation where, you know, it's definitely still, um, heavy wheat, but we also add in some oats. Um, and then instead of brewing that to about five and a half percent, we're actually brewing it to almost 9%. Um, understanding that we're not fermenting out the fruit. So we're getting no alcohol contribution from the fruit, which ultimately just results in dilution. Um, so with that dilution, we're looking at about a 30 to 40% by volume dilution. So it takes that 9% beer down to neighborhood of about four and a half to 5%, depending upon the base beer. And so then your slushes that you're brewing to 5% probably end up in the low fours. Um, so with those, we're still fermenting out the fruit. So, oh, okay. Yep. Okay. So the fruit component that goes in, um, obviously that, uh, you know, there's a dilution and a fermentation alcohol component to it too. Okay. Exactly. Kind of offsets. Yep. Sure, yep. sure. Exactly. So that's where we try to get to that 5% after dilution, but with fermentation, um, the residual gravity that we see from those fruit, con- uh, contributions in slush, um, are actually surprisingly low. Um, we mm. don't see a lot of final gravity contribution from those fruit additions. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So why ferment it out in something like slush and why leave more unfermented, uh, you know, in some of these bigger ones? Yeah. So with, uh, with the fruit lady stuff, um, we're really going after that full fruit expression from terpenes to flesh to fruit, uh, you know, fruit flavor and even, even, you know, the fruit sweetness. Um, with slush, it really is intended to still be a super drinkable, um, really refreshing drink. Um, I don't have any problem having, you know, two to three, uh, you know, slush beers, um, in a, in a setting. If I have a half of a fruit lady in a setting, it's, it's, um, about the only (laughs) thing that I want to have that's not bourbon at that point. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, so, you know, so then you mix this and I like that idea. I mean, I'm certainly talking to other brewers like Tanya Cornette of 10 Barrel this past summer, you know, she's mentioning the same thing, often using fruit in multiple formats in order to build this round idea of the fruit because one format doesn't always give you that full thing. And so sometimes, you know, whether it's dried or whether it's juice, whether it's even potentially extract, you know, in small yep. amounts on top of some of that puree, when sometimes using as many as three or four different forms of that same fruit that often can add different elements of this overall flavor that people perceive with it. You're playing, you know, that kind of mental, that psychological game. How do you, how do you, you know, as you, you know, designing some of these beers, how do you approach that from a creative standpoint and how do you, you know, make some decisions around what form you're going to use and then, you know, figuring out how, what kinds of quantities to use some of these things in, in order to, to pull out those best kinds of flavor. What's that creative process look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we rely, or at least I, you know, I rely really heavily on, um, you know, historic experience of, all right, well, we did that cherry, but it didn't really come out exactly how we wanted it to, or we did that strawberry and it didn't quite, it didn't quite hit the mark in terms of full, full spectrum of flavor. 
Um, so we rely rely really heavily on those uh, on those experiences of you know where it didn't quite meet where we wanted it to be sure, or, or got, sure. it got ninety percent of the way there, but the yeah. last ten percent you can really you know how do we hone in on that last ten percent? Um, and so a lot of it's experience, but the boundaries are the the guidelines you know and and for those you know who are who are looking to kind of make these things either at home or or you know other professional brewers the the experience that we've had is roughly about two thirds puree and then one third. Uh, juice concentrate um, that usually gets us that 90% of the way there. Um, and then looking at things like essential oils or um, even, you know, freeze dried fruit powder. Um, I know nuts.com has a lot of those kinds mm. of products too. Yeah. Um, or even getting into some of the, you know, the extracts, the natural extracts that um, give you that top note. Zests, zests, zests are a perfect example. Yep. Um, all of our citrus is, is actually uh, whole fruit puree that we then, uh, run through a masticating juicer, which is an interesting, uh, it's a fun word to say, masticating juicer. But basically, sure. it's uh, it's got like an auger that it's presses. It's chewing, right? It's, <laughs> it's chewing. chewing. Yeah. Um, so that... Uh, There's lots of masticators <laughs> out here in Greeley, by the way. <laughs> uh, you've got a great masti- mastication technology. Uh, Just a quarter mile down the road. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. all around over here. Sure, <laughs> sure. He's talking about the ruminants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ruminant lots nutrition. Of, lots of cattle farming uh, out here in this uh, this area. Sure. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, that uh, that juicer does a great job. It just it doesn't. So just why take... use a juicer then with this uh, this uh, puree? And aseptic puree, I assume. Or? It's actually stuff that we're doing in house. Really? Um, yeah, we're taking. You're whole... just making your own purees here. Yep. Yeah, okay. we take whole limes, whole lemons. Um, if we're doing grapefruit, we'll do whole grapefruit. Um, run it through. Uh, we actually uh, invested in this massive, um, I say massive, it doesn't come across as massive until you're in the market for a uh, food processor. Um, but yeah, it's a commercial slash industrial food processor that uh, will take whole lemons and beat them to a pulp within about 10 seconds. Whole lemons with with the skins on. With the skins on, yeah. And you just throw it in there. Just, and just throw it in there. And purees just, the crap out of it. Purees the hell out of it. Huh. Um, and then... With the peel and everything. Peel, or does it de- everything. Does it take the peel off? Everything. It's just a... Huh. It's a monster. Okay. Um. So, yeah, we just beat it into and so a so you pulp. don't even... You will just use that entire thing, you know, peel, pith, and fruit flesh for some of these fruits. Everything, yep. And then huh. we, th- we throw it through the juicer, and effectively what the juicer does is it expresses all of that uh, peel, pith, uh, it gets all of the, you know, the juice content out of, out of the actual like whole fruit. Um, and uh, we're left with this almost like creamy, um, you know, slurry almost that we, uh, that we then add to the tank. And what we find is that we don't get the extraction on bitterness um, from the peel and pith of the beer actually sitting on, you know, that whole component. Um, it spits out all of the, you know, uh, the connective tissue within the actual, like, yeah. you know, the the, the in- interior of the fruit. Um, but uh, so no pulp in the in these. Effectively, no pulp. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the amount of like uh, essential oil, natural oil expression that we get out of out of citrus, you know, we'll do a thirty barrel batch with eight pounds of limes. Huh. It's it's incredible. Um, so you're so just making, still getting oil out of the peel, maybe, but just not the peel material itself. Exactly, exactly. Huh. Which is where you're getting a lot of that pe- that, yeah. that pithy bitterness, right? Um, especially if you're talking about you know letting the beer condition on uh, peel and pith for you know upwards of of you know seven to ten days. Um, being able to take that component out and and just allow it to condition on all of the good stuff that you want. That's going to 
create flavor, but not the the bitterness. Um, that's that seems to have really worked for us when we're doing citrus additions. How and when are you doing this? Obviously, if you're now adding in, uh, you know, whole fruit, you know, there's you. I, I can't imagine you can do this safely into finished beer at that point. You know, is sure. there? Is, you know, I would want to be doing that where there's still yeast involved that can outcompete any, uh, you know, potential beer spoilers in that. What, right. uh, what is, uh, you know, how does that process work? Yeah. So, um, how and do you clean this up after you go through the masticating <laughs> juicer? Right. Um, so we're typically adding, uh, uh, adding all of our, um, you know, high sugar concentrated fruits, um, either, either fruit juice concentrate or concentrate purees or even purees. We're adding all of that on like day three of fermentation so okay. that we're basically catching it at high croissant, allowing that, uh, that yeast to do a lot of the heavy lifting. We've also got, you know, in, in terms of like high croissant, you've got, that's, that's the point at which you're going to have, uh, the highest concentration of the yeast that you want in there. So it's right. going to have a better chance of out competing anything that, that rides in on, on the fruit. Now we are using like uh, aseptic fruit purees or um, you know purees that have been stabilized and don't have uh, you know high high levels of bacterial or wild yeast loads um, both in in beers that were fermenting out the fruit but also beers that were uh, adding in post fermentation with post fermentation we are stabilizing the beer so we yeah. took, a, took a page out of the mead and in, in, in wine world um, using uh, uh, we call it k-bait so potassium sorbate yeah um, that, uh, you know, is, is definitely effective at, uh, you know, your conventional yeasts and basically making sure that they have basically one generation left. Um, obviously pitching rate is a concern and, and we've, we've played with that. Um, the higher that you get, you start to get these like geranium kind of influence compounds, mm-hmm. which you want to stay away from that. Um, but you also want to get to a point where it's high enough that you're, um, you know, you're getting to a place where you're stabilizing effectively. How much is enough and how much is too much potassium sorbate? <laughs> fun, fun story. Um, so when we start looking at uh, sour beers and the pH side of things, um, we find that that geranium side tends to not come up as expressive in lower pH beers. Um, in higher pH beers, it does not take a lot of, hmm. of potassium sorbate to, to what do you, start getting What would that. you consider high versus low pH there? I would say anything under about 3.8, so, okay. which is about where most of our uh, our kettle sours end up landing is in okay. the 3.5, 3.3 range. Um, but any anything under that 3.8 is really where I see um, fewer impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, we actually did a lager with uh, with chili and uh, we ended up stabilizing that because we weren't sure exactly what the chili uh, like the concentration the sugar concentration from the roasted chilies was going to be um, just as a measure of safety right. obviously it was lager yeast too so it was going to be a slow 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 sure, roll sure um, but uh, with that I want to say we ended up going with. Uh, I want to say it was about 30 grams per barrel, and it, was, it got to that point where it was like, is that geranium or is that chili? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. that, so that's the upper threshold on, on something like that. But we'll get up to, um, you know, maybe about 100 grams uh, per barrel on some of our stuff that we want to make sure that it's very, very um, it's dealt with. <laughs> sure, so to sure. Speak. So are there any, are there any uh, you know, fruits that don't work well through your own kind of processing and masticating juicer process things that uh you know you find you know you they're better to, to get processed than to try to to crank out yourself it sounds like citrus becomes a thing that you do a lot of than yourself are there some things that don't work well through that process 
I think, you know, one of the things that we do, and it's my least favorite thing to do is watermelon. Um, it, it's, it's such a weird fruit when you process it as a whole, um, uh, as a whole fruit that it gets so squashy. Um, especially if you add any kind of heat treatment to it, it just, it, it's a, it, it turns me off on anything that's watermelon. Mm. Um, so with watermelon, we end up leaning more towards those, you know, those extracts and trying to find those flavors that, uh, make a lot of sense. There's also a lot of really bad extracts out there that are completely <laughs> overused. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, but with watermelon, we find that, uh, you know, the best way to, to deliver on what customers really want with watermelon is to, you know, lean more heavily. Obviously we still use a lot of, um, a lot of watermelon, like, uh, puree or juice concentrate. Um, but anytime you apply heat in that production process, uh, especially in the aseptic world, it just gets super squashy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Do you ever cook, uh, uh, you know, try to purify, purify, uh, try to, uh, pasteurize, you know, this stuff after it comes out of your juicer before you add it, uh, into beer itself? Um, we have on the, that's where we learned the, the don't do it, watermelon, <laughs> don't do it yeah. with watermelon. Um, yeah, but with the, with the citrus stuff, um, you know, in terms of the, uh, the gravity contribution, we're looking at, you know, uh, less than four points of specific gravity that we're adding in a, maybe, uh, we, by the time we get through with it, with eight pounds of, of, of limes or lemons, we might have a half a gallon that we're adding to the mix. So as long as we're adding that somewhere where the yeast is still kind of happy, it can go later on than mm-hmm. when we're adding the, the yeah. you know, the fruit puree and the, and, uh, the, the, the juice concentrates. Um, we can obviously add that a little bit later, but, um, as long as it's going in when, when the yeast is still, you know, uh, doing its thing and hasn't been cold crashed, then, then we're usually, you know, spot on with that. Sounds like a small, relatively small amount of fruit, you know, rel- uh, relative to the flavor impact that you're getting from this. Do you attribute that to then, you know, this process? And I mean, I guess if you could probably also look at an ROI on a system like a, you know, food, you know, commercial grade food processor yeah. and masticating juicer, you know, as a, you know, by buying raw fruit versus buying processed fruit, which is, you know, expensive, harder to source. Obviously a lot of those companies have been having a hard time maintaining their own supply. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, what, what does the ROI look like on that for, from a commercial <laughs> perspective? Right. I think it's actually kind of interesting because I, I could see, especially if you're getting, you know, a more intense flavor impact from that, that, uh, you know, it could have some real positives in this overall. Exactly. I mean, it, with with the way that we're processing citrus, it, it gets to the point where you're getting a level of concentration without having to, you know, invest in, you know, like a, um, a distillation system for uh, essential oils, right? Um, but also, you're getting you're getting e- expressions within that fruit that you won't necessarily get from a commercial fruit puree purveyor, um, and it, it's weird because you know we've worked with uh, um, Source of Nature, who's uh, literally named we named a beer series after the fruit ladies be behind source of nature in in wellington um and so we we you know have have loved working with them they're a great business partner of ours um but in terms of citrus the things that we you know perceive the thing the way that we think about beer and and try to uh produce these beers um you know going through that extra step of bringing bringing in the the puree side of things in-house and and going through that additional step with the juicer um you know it, it's made a lot of sense from us from a from a uh, just end result 
side of things. Um, now, if you go back to the ROI and the business side of me, uh, it probably says, yeah, that wasn't worth spending $5,000 on a, on a <laughs> okay. food processor. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. That being said, you know, uh, you're, you're able to unlock components that you otherwise couldn't unlock with, with those two pieces of, of equipment. So. And that is another interesting thing. Then you can source, you know, unprocessed raw fruit um, of all kinds and create your own purees from that versus buying more industrial purees where there is a consistent flavor goal across that entire product where that manufacturer is then like trying to build an average, you know, like almost like a macro beer. So that's the same thing the entire time, you know, versus your approach, which can be one of, well, we have some really cool, you know, uh, citrus of this specific variety that no one will ever make a, you know, know, a consistent puree from, or, you know, this batch of this thing, which, you know, where you can make kind of small, you can get enough of it to make something interesting for for yourselves, but it may not ever be large enough to hit the kind of volume that a large producer would need to make to, to turn that into a viable large scale commercial product. Exactly. Yeah. It's one of those things where it, it kind of scratches that itch of, you know, still being, uh, you know, a craft producer, still still having, you know, a hands-on approach to um, ingredient um, dosing, ingredient usage, uh, without getting to this level of pedantic, um, uh, I guess, approach to, to you know, what we do on our daily basis of, oh, we got to get out the, uh, you know, the, the double diaphragm pump to pump this drum. And then tomorrow we're going to do the same thing and pump this drum. So it gets us a little bit more connected with that, sure. um, you know, that ingredient that, that we're using. So look at that. And you can make kettle quick tart beers with an acid component, <laughs> but do it in a craft focused way. As you look at it now, uh, you know, what are, you know, were there any mistakes that you made along the way that uh, you wish you'd known at the time that you <laughs> wouldn't repeat now if you were going back uh, outside of watermelon, obviously? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of things that I, I joke that they're, you know, just the learning lessons, you know, whether it be the idea that we're going to, uh, create a commercial enterprise with a 20 gallon, 20 gallon more beer sculpture system. And then realizing like, Oh, it took us, you know, 21 hours to produce 120 gallons of beer. This is dumb. Um, so there's, I mean, obviously that or, or, or even going to, um, Oh gosh! For the first uh, seven years of this brewery, we uh, grained out by hand with a shovel out of the top of the mash tun because our mash tun was a an old you know creamery tank from the 1950s. Um, we finally ended up putting in a uh, a manway in, in that brew house, and we have a new brew house, which is great. What's um, the new brew house? New brew house is a uh, fully automated 30 barrel brew house from ABS Commercial. Well, there you go. One of our sponsors. Plug, plug. But automation is a, was a wonderful thing these days, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we uh, for for the longest period of time, you know, the best we could do for automation was uh, was a Ranco controller. Yeah. Um, and now everything's tied in into one PLC or or a series of three PLCs that all talk to each other, and uh, it's it's fantastic. Far smarter. Well, I told everyone we were going to talk about barrel stouts and we've just talked about fruit beers uh you know for the last 40 some odd minutes um so let's talk about <laughs> barrel aged stouts uh you know clearly this is not the primary focus for the brewery you know the, you know, you make lots of other beers obviously we're drinking czech style lager uh while we we're talking about yeah. all of these other kinds of things um you're certainly playing across all of these spectrums but uh but when it comes to hitting that uh you know that top couple percent of the beer market you know good barrel aged stouts definitely make some waves with people in that world. Talk to me about how you all have envisioned that project and, uh, you know, and find your own identity 
with that style of beer. Of course, there's another brewery here in Greeley that a lot of people know about that also makes a lot of barrel-aged beers. You know, I, I mean, there's, uh, you know, but, but they're strangely, interestingly, um, when I taste them, they are different approaches to the same kind of style. Um, you all definitely have a different aesthetic approach to yours. You're trying to achieve something that's, uh, you know, not exactly the same. So talk to me about how you envision your barrel-aged beer, barrel-aged stout approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, for a very long time, uh, you know, we've always been focused on barrel-aged beers, whether that be, um, you know, some of our mixed culture stuff, the the wild, spontaneous fermentation stuff, um, or whether it, it, it blend into this, uh, you know, uh, acronym, cryptonym, uh, vanilla homonym. Um, we call it the NIM series because uh, it, it's actually kind of has a has a fun origin story with uh, you know our very first approach at, at this style of imperial stout, um, uh, finding a home in Laws barrels for eighteen months, um, in Laws uh, Whiskey House, they're, you know sure, local sure. local local whiskey purveyor. Um, they uh, operated under a pseudonym for uh, I want to say it was the first three or four years that they were in existence. Um, Basically, not having any kind of commercial presence right. in the whiskey game, um, with just, the intention just making uh, distillate, putting it into barrels, yep, so that they'd have somebody to sell when they finally opened and, and got public about the brand. Sure, exactly. So, I mean, keeping the brand completely silent under a pseudonym, I, I want to say it was Gargoyle Enterprises or mm-hmm. something, you know, completely right. nondescript. Um, you know, we we took some inspiration with that of saying like, all right, well, you know, we've used laws laws to call a rye barrels for this very first entrance. We're going to call it pseudonym. And then it just kind of stuck um, that every beer that we are making in the series where it's got a level of thick mouthfeel, it's barrel centric. Um, but then in, in the instance where we choose an adjunct, the adjunct is very uh, pur- purposeful, but not um, intended to overwhelm all the other characteristics of, of that base beer. Um, so I can call this segment of the podcast the secrets of nim <laughs> yes yes <laughs> right there right there okay i don't know this it just comes to me it comes I, I, yeah, I, you know. it works anyway let's talk about these secrets of nim <laughs> um you know what uh what's your you know is there a consistent base you know, you know there's multiple ways to approach barrel aged stouts you know there are plenty of breweries out there that are building large amounts of blending stock across different recipes different formats different kinds of barrels throwing it all in there and then coming at it after that, you know, as those things age out and building blends on the back end, there are certainly other breweries that have are working on a more kind of consistent, you know, uh, stream idea where they've conceived of this and it's going into a barrel. It's going to become this final beer down the road. Um, both of those are perfectly valid production methods. You know, there's nothing wrong or right about any either of those methods. There's only the finished beers that people make through them and uh, how those express and connect with people. Um, you know, what is what is your approach? to barrel aged stout look like sure yeah um ultimately we've we've gone on an approach uh you know when we first started we didn't have a lot of production capacity we didn't have a lot of space certainly didn't have a lot of fermenters so we had to make good use out of that that one brew length um so it originally started as like all right well, we'll make this this imperial stout and then we'll just carve off 50 gallons and throw right. it into a barrel um and i think you know what we found with that is that it's it's one way to approach it um, but it doesn't really leave a lot of, uh, room for intention in either one of those sandboxes, whether it be specifically like the beer that gets released that pays for the batch, or whether it be the beer that goes into the barrel that you cross your fingers and hope that it, it comes out well. And so that was our, you know, original intention or, or original, um, 
uh, I guess, strategy, war, strategy yeah. way of going about doing it. And, uh, you know, lots of hits and misses from that, that approach. Um, as of late, you know, now that we have, you know, in 2018, we, we took over the space that the distillery used to have, um, when they bought their own building and, and moved, um, once we took over that space, then we actually had the production capacity to be able to dedicate, you know, one brew length or two brew lengths to uh, putting things up in barrels and tying up that, you know, that capital, that revenue um, for a longer period of time. And I think that's one of the biggest things that uh, has has been a bit of our struggle is just the timing of that. You know, um, you mentioned the neighbors down the street. They do a great job with with the way that they approach Media Noche and um, the adjunct series that 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 kind of weaves within that. Um, so with, with us, you know, having a very different approach or different set of circumstances available, it was kind of like, well, it'd be cool if we could have two producers in Greeley doing very, you know, uh, similar, I, I want to say similar things, but also a very different uh, influence, very different method of execution. Um, it's at like the same two time. cubist painters, but they aren't <laughs> the same painter. Exactly. You know? Yeah, sure. It's all the same school, but uh, these are different expressions of those things. You yep. don't, I assume you're not uh, boiling for 30 hours and doing uh, three mashes along the way on these. We are, we are not. We are not. Um, <laughs> you know, we make good use of, of sure, uh, some sure. more complex sugars going in, whether it be honey and in some certain ones, uh, uh, whether it be, you know, a level of maltodextrin usage or dextrin, uh, dextrose usage. Um, or, you know, in the event that we decide to do an all malt, we aren't, we have no aspirations of filling the kettle at that point. Um, what we get is what we get. And, you know, we might boil for a little while, but this new brew house, by the way, from ABS commercial, <laughs> um, has an internal calandria. So, okay. uh, you know, we, we can get that thing ripping on a, you know, 20 barrel batch in the 30 barrel kettle. And, uh, it just, it creates that, that, that concentration of work that we're looking for in a very mm -hmm. short period of time. So, um, you know, even if it's, all right, we're going to boil for an entire day, then we're going to just bring it down. We're going to let it hang out at 200 degrees overnight. And then we're going to come back the next day and we'll just let it rip for another day. You know, it, it's not one of these things where, all right, we're going to do a marathon boil for 48 hours and, and have eyes on it the whole time, making sure yeah. that, you know, we don't have, uh, that works in a, in a scenario where, you know, uh, you've got a level of dedication to that. Um, you know, our focus is obviously like, all right, well, let's just make a, a blended approach to beers too. Um, so for, for us, if, if we're, you know, throwing it on, let it boil for, for eight hours one day and then coming in the next day and let it go for another six, hmm. it, it works. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess to, to put a finer point on it, that's kind of how we've, we've looked at it and we've, uh, you know, obviously understanding that we're going to go for those longer, I, I don't want to say longer, but more intense boils. We obviously want to keep the, uh, level of acrid bitterness down. So right. using things like pale chocolate malt and dehusts, carafa, um, you know, those are, those are key tenants. Of, of is there a core you know, recipe or do you brew a few different recipes in order to have some things to blend against yeah so we uh we we really kind of vary it up um every time we're brewing something it's you know we, we look back to the base recipe of the same concept the last time that we did it and then we say well what did we what did we want to do differently about it this time or what what has changed with our access to ingredients right. um and so i think you know I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, there's necessarily like a blending stock, but there's multiple different recipes that are put up in barrels right now. We don't, we don't have a ton of barrels, uh, to speak of really. Um, I want to say we're probably at maybe mm, 25, 30 barrels at mm. this point. So it's definitely become one of those things that we've, yeah. we've scaled back on. Um, but it is still, 
something that I enjoy doing, something that I sure, like. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, I from an intellectual curiosity standpoint, like how can we do this? So sure, um, and polishes your cred with uh, you know a certain part of the the beer world. And, you know, yeah. these can make some some of those special beers to your customers that are. As they're buying a case of Fruit Ladies, uh, they want to, you know, have an extra <laughs> yeah. couple barrel-aged beers to, yeah. you know, something to celebrate with. Here's something it's to special. have a 12-ounce can with, and then, exactly. you know, you can yeah. You know, yeah. take it from there. So It is nice, too, with these Nim beers, as, as you say, uh, that you do package them in cans and that they, do, they don't feel as precious as, uh, you know, as some tend to approach this realm of barrel-aged beers. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for us, um, it was maybe... Uh, born out of just necessity of like, we don't have a, a great counter pressure filler that I would feel comfortable putting up a, a beer that you're going to spend a dollar an ounce on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, cans, absolutely. You know, we've we've done some crazy things with cans, whether it be can conditioning on our on our you right. know, mixed culture uh, mixed culture stuff with with Funkyo couch and cans, which was nutty. Um, but also, I mean, it's it's a it's a machine that we operate that that uh, you know my team operates every every week, couple times a week. So you know, saying hey, we're just gonna change out a couple of change parts, um, and and we're gonna do twelves today. Um, it's you know obviously there are some dynamics with that and and some changes, but it's not being like all right guys, we run a canning line you know ninety percent of our year, and then here's the other ten percent where we have to dig out the machine that you guys are not familiar with, and I have to like think through what we did last time and if we broke anything <laughs> right, the last time right. we used it, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, uh, it also goes to that, you know, uh, I guess one of our core tenets in our ethos is just beer is made for drinking. Um, there's plenty of beers out there that I have in my cellar that, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, Cantillon or, or, uh, even, even Goose Island with Bourbon County, you know, I've got a couple of those hanging out cause they're good sure. accessible beers. Um, but at the end of the day, the beer that we're we're trying to make are are, are beers that we want people to drink. So. Sure, sure. So let's go back to talk about that. So you've got a few different recipes. You you don't have a ton of barrels. Um, this is definitely on that kind of specialty end. Um, you know, as you're thinking about building a recipe for barrel aging now, what would a what would a you know recipe you know general kind of middle of the road recipe look like uh, today? Sure, sure. Yeah, we use um, uh, Brewer's Friend as a calculator, just as as something to um, you know, kind of balance, uh, components and, and, uh, make sure that, you know, percentages are looking where they should right, be. Right. Um, you don't want to get to a point where you're like, you know, 30 to 40% of your grist is, is heavily roasted, heavily kilned. <laughs> right? right. Um, you know, it's kind of the, uh, uh, the salt of the beer world where you, yeah. you're, you're yeah. adding that in, um, at a rate that makes sense. So, you know, we, we may wind up on a 2000 pound grist bill of maybe, 300 pounds of it uh yeah maybe 300 pounds might be you know varying degrees of uh you know darker malts so chocolate mm -hmm. rye is one that we love yeah um chocolate wheat um any of those those hus huskless um grains that that end up going through that uh um you know that that caramelization and, and high high kilning temperatures um we 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 love that so um Carafa three we use at uh, you know about a five percent rate, um, and then a lot of uh, you know we end up using a decent amount of uh, of crystal malt, um, uh, varying degrees of that as well. So some light crystal malt and and uh, medium crystal malt. Um, big fan of Simpsons, so mm. uh, yeah, we'll throw in uh, usually one to two bags of of each of those in a fifteen barrel batch. Yeah, 
Yep. Just to, again, provide those kinds of mid notes and supportive, uh, sweeter notes and, uh, you know, that, that help, uh, uh, you know, give some, uh, some support to the, the heftier roasty notes. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, as far as IBUs, we're looking at, um, somewhere in that, uh, you know, 20 to 40 range, depending mm. upon, you know, what, all right, is this going to be something that we're going to try to tuck away for 12 months, you know, intending to tuck away for 12 months, or is it going to be something that we tuck away for, you know, uh, we, we had one beer that we just came out with that was almost, uh, I think it was 45 months in barrel. Oh, geez. Which was an interesting thing because I think they, I blame that more on the barrel than the beer. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you shoot for more bitterness and a little more heftiness uh, if it's going to be sitting in there longer. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so if it's if it's something that we're looking at like a twelve to eighteen month horizon, yeah. Um, then we're you know obviously gravity is going to be a little bit more restrained and uh, IBUs are going to be a little bit more restrained. But the longer aging, you know, we try to get uh, um, a level of, of of hopping that that will stand up to uh, you know some of those harsher. Uh, I mean, a barrel is not a not a an easy environment for a beer to go through. No, right? not at all. Yeah, for those longer aging uh, intentions, do you also ramp up the uh, you know f- uh, finishing gravity? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Do that. Um, higher eight. Uh, higher starting gravity, higher finishing gravity. We try to get into the barrel, uh, somewhere above ten fifty. Um, and if we're trying to get to that, uh, um, you know two year plus range. Um, we're obviously going to try to get up to, you know, 12 to 14% alcohol content, which gets us in that, uh, 32 to 36 degree Play-Doh range. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be safer and sturdier for that kind of long voyage. Um, for shorter turn barrel aged beers, do you shoot a little lower than that? Shoot a little lower. I mean, we still want to be over 10. Um, anything lower than that, you start having these, you know, competitions with, uh, you know, the, the spirit that was in the barrel to begin with. Yeah. Um, and it, it tends to thin out the beer as well. So then that contributes to the amount of, uh, and this is maybe a little bit of a dirty word, but manipulation, uh, that we go through on the backside. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the biggest misnomers in, in the craft world, at least, you know, for, for me is, you know, we aren't just taking a beer and, um, whether it be a crazy smoothie style sour, whether it be, uh, you know, even a Pilsner or our American lagers, um, you know, I use the, uh, the analogy of curling, right. That, uh, you know, a lot of times you, you throw the stone and, and hope for it to end up you know, where it lands. Right. I mean, that's the shuffleboard, right? Right. Um, I guess it's shuffle shuffleboard versus curling, I should say. Um, so shuffleboard being, you know, you toss it and you just hope it lands wherever it lands where curling, you know, you're, you're influencing the directionality of that stone all the way until it, until it stops. Um, and so we take a curling approach to beer. Um, and especially so in, in our barrel aged Imperial stouts is, you know, we'll, we'll taste it and make sure that it, it's where we want it to to be in terms of, uh, you know, coming out of the barrel, but by no means are we finished with that beer just by having it come out of the barrel and, and say, all right, we're done. Um, so then what do you do? Uh, what are some of those modifications? How are some of the, you know, how do you then, you know, kind of coax that beer as it comes out of a barrel into the beer that you want it to be, you know, as it goes into a package? Sure. I mean, one of the things that, that we actually learned, um, you know, we were using a lot of toasted coconut um, on, uh, gosh, we used it on Kryptonym, and then we used it on, um, I want to say it was, oh, it was Duhast Cake, oh, yeah. uh, the collab that we did with, with Bottle Logic. And one of the things that I didn't realize about toasted coconut is in order to get that caramelization on the outside of, of the actual like shredded coconut, um, they're actually applying, uh, like a dextrose 
water mixture hmm. to the outside of the coconut. Interesting. So you have a level of sugar contribution that you're picking up inherently from They're the They're adding extra coconut. sugar just to add that little like toasted, uh, you know, brown element on the outside. Exactly. Oh, man. Right? Tricky. It ruins it for everyone. Jesus. Um, <laughs> as soon as I realized that, and I realized like, okay, every time we were using coconut, it always comes out sweeter. And I was like... Well, it can't just be from the coconut. And yeah. then, you know, you go through and you actually read the nutrition labels and the specs and you're like, oh my gosh, this has, you know, 20 grams or basically the the, the coconuts, 20, 20 bricks or something like that. 20 grams of sugar per 100 grams of, of toasted coconut. Um, so taking a page out of that and thinking about like, all right, well, if we're getting this interesting push from toasted coconut how do we how do we do that without using toasted coconut well then we have to look at all right well what do we need to do a, a small sugar addition and stabilization with that or do we just use you know maltodextrin um you know i think those are a lot of a lot of tools in the toolbox that people aren't necessarily talking about a whole lot mm-hmm. um but also things that people aren't maybe necessarily considering that um instead of using the shuffleboard shuffleboard approach to to beer and, and launching it at brew day and saying all right we're going to come back to it 36 months later without any kind of you know uh, guiding or shepherding of that beer um i think that just leaves a lot on the table to um to, yeah. to, to make up distance, you know? Um, do you ever blend beer back into, uh, you know, some of those uh, as they come out in order to kind of push in another direction? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, blending, uh, you know, base beer that has uh, uh, been fe- been fermented out, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to try and rail or rain back in some of the some of the tannic expression that's a perfect way to to uh you know again push that stone in the in the direction that you want to go um even that's what goose goose blenders do right you know use that lively younger beer it's what bourbon uh you know blenders will do too you know mix those ages because you're trying to find that kind of quality of older you know a stock that just has that you know beautiful old smoothness to it but doesn't you know always have the same kind of lively energy you know so finding some of that from a, a younger stock can also build that kind of exactly know, yeah energy to it one of the really interesting things that i learned from the guys at the block distilling um in in rhino uh, down in denver that we that uh, we've worked with on a couple of different barrel aging projects is you know that when you talk about sending distillate into a barrel uh with the intention of, of barrel aging um, you, you have to consider proof, right? Um, and the, the, the comment that they said was alcohol is a fantastic solvent of, uh, of wood and of oak and water is an excellent solvent of sugar. Um, and if you think about barrel as also or, you know, a barrel as also having sugar components in the cellulose, um, and being able to influence what you're getting out with the spirit, um, as to whether you want to get more oak or whether you want to get more sweetness out of it. Um, I think that's an interesting way to think about beer as well. Um, because when you start talking about extended aging in barrels with Imperial stouts, you still get some of that solvent versus, um, you know, sweetness, uh, extraction with, with the beer that's going in the barrel too. So to your point, using high proof, low proof, blending those out, you're going to get different things as well. Um, and we do that as well as, as, you know, looking at this recipe and that was designed as a, you know, going into the barrel at 14% where this one was maybe 11% blending those two together and seeing where those, those lie. Um, we play in that sandbox. Yeah. Interesting. Let's talk about, uh, adding other ingredients into, you know, you mentioned 
obviously coconut is an issue. The the you know our beer of the year is vanilla homonym. Vanilla plays a big component there. Um, you know, talk to me about using vanilla in yeah. barrel aged stouts. I think uh, you know vanilla has been an interesting thing to source over the course of the last few years. Um, you know, in what was it 2017, 18, we had the the big vanilla, big vanilla shortage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so g- living through that and understanding, like, all right, well, you know, vanilla is not just always plentiful, and you can't just you know, go to your typical spice dealers, you know, whether it be, you know, for us, we use a lot of products from Savory Spice Shop and Old Town Spice Shop and Fort mm-hmm. Collins. Um, basically going to someone that specializes in vanilla beans, uh, whether it be. Yeah, strangely enough, right here in Fort Collins, you've got Rodell, uh, gigantic, yep. uh, you know, now owned by ADM, Archer's Daniel Midland, like one of the larger vanilla producers that works with folks out there. Yeah, you, yep. you've got some vanilla resources right here in your backyard. Exactly. Yeah, so we've uh, we've found, um, you know, finding, uh, you know, fresh vanilla beans, vanilla beans from, uh, you know, we get samples and, and being able to yeah. see like, all right, well, this sample's interesting in this way. This sample's interesting in this way. Um, even o- source of origin, uh, Papua New Guinea, um, that was the, the, the source of origin for uh, the original vanilla pseudonym. And it was very interesting because it had this uh, like licorice whip red vine hmm. con- contribution that I I'd never experienced in in uh, a vanilla laden you know imperial stout before. Um, it was very interesting. Um, maybe something that we'll revisit. <laughs> uh, I don't know, fifteen yeah. years down the road. But <laughs> um, yeah. you know, using things like uh, you know Madagascar bourbon v- vanilla. That's uh, for for vanilla hominin that's the direction that we went and uh we work with a company called vanilla bean kings which is a internet based business out of uh of all places i want to say it was uh south dakota or north dakota Mm. um but for some reason they just had access to these incredibly uh rich incredibly like um for lack of a better word like a lot of oil and grease Mm. um so, uh, you know, when we, you know, start translating that into higher alcohol content beers. You get that sticky, sticky vanilla. <laughs> exactly. You know. yeah, yeah. It's the best. Um, so, yeah, we found that Vanilla Bean Kings does a really good job for. Vanilla for, Bean Kings. Yep. How do you, how do you go about processing it? Um, we will take those and uh, that uh, massive uh, food processor that, uh, yep. that we found. Yeah. Um, we'll basically make almost like a vanilla caviar with it. But uh, we, we go through the entire bean Um you know, we want to make make as best utilization of that uh, that that bean pot as possible. I know a lot of people use the the cut and scrape method, where mm-hmm. you're just getting the you know the um, I guess technically that's the caviar. We we just make like a paste. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of oil content that you can get out of the actual like skin and stem. Sure. Biggest thing is making sure that you don't get it too. Um, you you have to puree it a bit um, to be able to get the the stemmy woodiness of of the mm. actual pod to to break down. So. Um, We'll add that in with a, a little bit of tincture of uh, um, higher proof spirit, and then uh, we'll actually add that to uh, um, a water uh, bath that's uh, hanging out at like 190, 195, just to get some of the uh, the high proof alcohol out. Hmm. Um, so that way we're not fortifying our right, fortifying right. the beer because um, that's a no no. You don't do that. Yep. Um, yeah, and then we'll take that water bath and add it back. Um, we don't have to worry about DO with that because if you, you know, if you boiled the water and let it sit to, um, you know, that 190, 195, then mm-hmm. you don't have to worry too much about, uh, about DO pickup. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's a fantastic use of, uh, the, the, the food processor. 
<laughs> sure. It sounds like you get a lot of use out of that. Anyway, yeah. let's let's pull out. What's uh, what does the big picture look like for Wiley? Which you all have gone through. You know, you've you've watched this kind of approach to product change over time. You know, you've certainly scaled up your your brew house now into a thirty barrel brew house. Um, you know what you're making and how you're making it in the space that you're now occupying. You know, is certainly far from the kind of nano brewery hope that you had when you were launching the brewery. Um, what do you hope to achieve? with Wiley Roots and, uh, you know, what does success look like? How will you know when you get there? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, for both Miranda and I, we are uh, constantly on the pursuit of, of making really interesting things that appeal to a wide wide market, wide demographic. Um, you know, where, where we started with this, you know, I, I like to call them something beers, right? Something hoppy, something malty, um, something light and something dark. Um, we started on that track and I think, you know, the evolution is, okay, well, that's a great place to start, but let's continue to expose more people to the the crazy that we are, whether it's the, um, the fruit lady side of things or whether it's, uh, you know, very traditional Czech style lager. Um, I think the, the, the overarching big picture for us is um, make things that people want to drink and whether that's a, um, you know, uh, cocktail inspired sour beer or uh, a, a really nice continental uh, lager that uses all floor malted bohemian pilsner because I have to plug that um, you know 100% saws hops uh, I, I think whether it's making things on either side of the spectrum it's just really uh, trying to create um, you know a, a, a drinkable product that resonates with with people where they're at well, that sounds like a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Fill like a pro with Pro Fill can fillers from Pro Brew. Let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. American Canning provides patch packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter for brewers across the country. Brewers like Kyle here at Wiley Roots. And of course, mention the CBB podcast when you contact Twin Monkeys for a special discount on a new canning line. As always, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know this content matters to you. Um, this is, you know, it's tomorrow. If you're listening to this on a Friday, tomorrow is Small Business Saturday. Uh, we're a small business ourselves, and we appreciate your support. We depend on your support um, because we would not exist unless, you know, without your subscriptions that support what we do. Uh, so thank you all for listening. Uh, go on, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and help us continue to bring this content to you. Kyle, if people want to learn more about Wiley Roots, where do they uh, where do they find you all? Um, that's a great question. Uh, right now, you can find us at WileyRoots.com. Um, uh, fun, fun thing in the social media landscape. Um, uh, our page has kind of gotten hijacked on Instagram, so we're huh. still figuring that out. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so for right now, you can find us at WileyRoots.com and uh, limited access on, on Facebook. So. And the tap room right here in Greeley, Colorado? Tap room at 625 3rd Street in Greeley, Colorado, just uh, north and east of downtown. And of course, if you want to read more about uh, the vanilla homonym from Craft Beer and Brewing, one of Craft Beer and Brewing's top 20 beers of 2022, go to com. All of that story is out there for you. And of course, if you listen to this podcast, uh, I talked about it at length on our Best in Beer podcast. So there's another place to hear me talk about it a little bit more. Kyle, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, 
Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.